Hi, this is John Rennie, author of All in the Same Boat, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringle. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringle here, host of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished experts who want to share their knowledge and experiences in order to help you be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating toward more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is John Rennie. John is the co-founder, president, and CEO of Peak Demand, Inc., a premier manufacturer of critical components for electrical utilities. He's a former U.S. Navy nuclear submarine officer who's made seven deployments during the end of the Cold War. Prior to starting Peak Demand, John led eight manufacturing businesses for three global companies. He's the host of Deep Leadership Podcast and author of two best-selling books on leadership. I have The Watch, Becoming a Leader Worth Following, and All in the Same Boat. John lives in Wake Forest, North Carolina, and is here to talk about his book, All in the Same Boat, Lead Your Organization Like a Nuclear Submarine. Welcome, John. Hey, it's good to be here. Good to have you with me. I want to thank you for your service. John, tell me, when you were growing up, who's somebody who influenced or inspired you? Uh, my two grandfathers who both served in World War II, one was in the Army, one was in the Navy, and just hearing their stories, the things that they did, and later as I grew, realized that they were involved in some pretty amazing situations that I always felt like it was my duty to follow in their footsteps and go into the military myself, especially the stories from my grandfather that was in the Navy. I felt like it was my duty to follow in his footsteps and serve in the Navy. So really, they were the biggest influence on me as a young boy and as a young man. I'm sure that the stories they told were of exciting actions and critical decisions that made a difference. When you were early on in boot camp, I know that you deployed, you were in ROTC during your first immersive experience in the Navy, and you were getting up at earlier hours than you ever thought. And having to do physical fitness to a greater level than you probably ever imagined. Do you remember thinking back and saying, Grandpa never told me about this? Yeah, absolutely. The one thing they did teach me, which was keep your mouth shut, follow the orders, don't stand out is what they always said. Don't be a problem. So I think that was very helpful for me because I noticed a lot of my peers would stand out. They would crack a joke or they would not have their uniform looking properly and they get in trouble. I just remember thinking, I remember my grandfather saying, don't stand out, don't stand out. Both of them taught me that lesson. They also told me to make sure to take care of the supply officer and whoever the chief medic was. I always did that in throughout my career because the doc can keep you healthy, the supply officer can keep you fed. So those were lessons I always took from me. Good advice with lots of practical implications. I'm sure that you learned a lot about being able to influence and shape visions and missions for people as you're in the military. Do you remember the first time in the service that you were given responsibility over a group of people? What was that like? It's actually a pretty scary because I went through four years of engineering school. I got a mechanical engineering degree and then I was accepted into the submarine training program. You spent a year just studying nuclear power. So I spent a year in nuke school, what they call nuke school down in Orlando, Florida, six months at what they call a nuclear prototype where you actually operate a nuclear reactor and then three months at submarine school. So for a year and three months after college, I was being trained in a lot of technical things, a lot of processes, procedures, the, the right way of doing things on the reactor as well as on the submarine. But then as a young ensign, which is the lowest rank in the Navy, I show up to my first boat, the USS Tennessee, and it's in dry dock. When I saw that boat out of water, when you see a, a nuclear submarine, the largest submarine in the US fleet out of water, it's a bit intimidating. It's big. There's hundreds of people working around this boat, getting it ready for sea. I walk up with my sea bag on my shoulder, ready to go to sea and ready to take a leadership responsibility. And I realized I wasn't ready for this. There's no way I was ready for this. The Navy said I was ready, but I was very intimidated. 
intimidating. And when I throw my bag on my rack and I go back, I have another officer who's going to bring me back to the engine room to meet my team. I'm the reactor controls officer. I'm in charge of the men who maintain and operate the controls for a nuclear reactor, a seaborne nuclear reactor, right, on a submarine. So I meet my team and I'm probably 24 years old. My chief petty officer, the senior enlisted that's going to work for me, my second in command, has been in the Navy as many years as I've been alive. How do you lead when your team is much more experienced than you and older and have made multiple deployments? I had never made one. So that's an interesting dilemma as a leader. And I see a lot of young leaders get in those situations when they find that they're in charge, but yet they're not the oldest or the most experienced. So it happens all the time. So I learned a lot of valuable lessons in those early weeks and months as a young leader trying to establish some level of where the team could respect me. What do I bring to the table as a young officer? That was a little hard. It was very intimidating in those early days. Do you remember a point, John, where there was a meeting or there was an interaction where you gained a level of acceptance or recognition that just let you breathe easier and have a little bit less anxiety because you were able to either show how you could contribute or people just respected you and finally understood that was how the dynamic was going to work. I had a situation where we had a failure of a major piece of instrumentation on the reactor. My responsibility to do the research, figure out how to replace it, order the spare parts, create the procedure, and then actually lead the maintenance activity. And you say, okay, so Rennie just led a maintenance activity. No big deal, right? No, this was inside a reactor compartment. And the device we're talking about was actually right on top of the reactor. So this is a very controlled situation. And I write about in the book that I was almost like a choreographer. Every moment of the plan to bring people into the reactor compartment and out, and they couldn't be there. The temperatures had to be a certain level. The radiation levels had to be certain. I had to coordinate this major maintenance activity that had never been done before on an East Coast Trident uh, boat. I was the first one ever to do it. So I had to take responsibility. It was sleepless nights. It was constant time on the phone talking with other engineers and other boats. Then I led this maintenance activity. Now, remember the scene. I was outside the reactor compartment getting ready to to do this maintenance activity. And all my sailors were lined up in what they call anti-seas, anti-contamination suits. They're these yellow, we call them canary suits. They're all yellow. They're wearing breathing apparatus. And they're looking at me like, boy, I hope you know what you're doing. The thing is, I felt nervous too. Like, I hope I know what I'm doing too, because I've never done anything like this before. I'm a young man, college graduate, but I've never done maintenance on a reactor before. Not many people have in their life. We went through this whole thing and, and everything went perfectly. The part was replaced perfectly. The other one came out. Everything operated. We got everybody out of the reactor compartment, closed the hatch. That was the moment when I realized. And everybody looked at me and they're like, Rennie knows what he's doing. We did the work. He, he knows what he's doing. We can trust him to do the work. It was at that point, I think, where people said, Rennie's our boss and we're going to stand behind this guy because he does the work. You talk about when someone has that type of specialized training and mentorship, it goes a long way towards helping them be successful. You write in your book, I quickly learned in the corporate world that things are a lot different. Nobody hands you a qualification card and shows you the way. It says, I know all these things. Here's my proof. I have certified out of it. What's the difference that you saw the first time you recognized that people don't all have the commitment to learning the skills to show that they can lead, knowing what a difference it made in your own leadership in the Navy? That was a bit of a shock to me. In the Navy, you, you're given a qual card and they tell you that you your job is to get qualified. There's all this positive peer pressure to get qualified. When I say positive peer pressure, one of the things they call you when you 
show up to the boat, before you're qualified, they call you a nub, which is a non-useful body. It means you are wasting people's air and food until that you have the capability to stand watch and to, to back up your fellow shipmates, right? So there's this positive peer pressure to get qualified. So I was used to that and I worked really hard to get qualified in the Navy. So when I got out of the Navy and I worked for this large global company, I was hired as an associate design engineer. I was given a cubicle in the back of the engineering department. It's the one that nobody wanted because I was the new hire. The lights didn't quite work. The only thing I had in my office was a stapler. By the way, I still have that stapler today. It is right here in my desk. I've always had it my whole career. So I had a stapler and nothing else. I didn't have a computer. didn't get a computer until a month into my job. I didn't know what I was supposed to do. I had no idea. Not only that, about two weeks into my job, my boss was fired. So the guy that hired me was gone. I had a cubicle and a stapler and I didn't know what to do. So I went right back to my Navy training. I thought to myself, my job is to get qualified. All right, great. And I said, I don't know what being qualified is in a large global company. So I started talking to my peers. I started talking to the people that worked in the department. I said, here's the deal. I don't really know what I'm supposed to be doing. Do me a favor. Anytime you're working on something interesting, anytime that you go out on the shop floor, anytime that you're getting in deep into some of the standards on our industry, get me, show me, teach me. I became like a little puppy dog. I followed all these people around all the time. I asked a lot of questions and I just said, it was my responsibility to get qualified. That's the mindset I came in. My mindset was like, how do I add value to this company? They pay, they hired me. They're paying me money. How do I add value to this company? That was my mindset through the whole thing. I went from being an associate design engineer. Five years later, I was running my first manufacturing plant. So it was just me learning. I was promoted to quality manager and then engineering manager. And I was given plant manager. So I moved up very quickly. But because I kept asking questions, I was relentlessly curious and I volunteered for everything. Anytime there was an assignment, I'm like, I'll do it. I'll do it. Because I wanted to learn. I wanted to add value. That was the mindset from the military that put me in that position where I said, I've got to add value. I don't want to be a nub. I want to be valuable. Even though there wasn't that positive peer pressure in the corporate environment, I just placed it on myself. You created it for yourself. What's interesting is I'm thinking of the acronym you shared in the book of Navy, never again volunteer yourself, where there's some situations where you learn not to step forward. And in corporate life, in a job, you said, you know what? I've got to go outside of that training or no one's going to come invite me into these situations. What was it like to have to overcome that reinforcement, that training that you would encounter in the Navy? That was just a funny thing we used to say, never again volunteer yourself because that was the Navy acronym. That's what I noticed. Like we have all employee meetings at this company and they said, oh, we need somebody. We're going to do this HR survey. We need a volunteer. And I'd look around and nobody was volunteering. I'm like, okay, I'll do it. But I think doing that, and this is just encouraging for anyone who's young, new in their career, is when you volunteer for these different assignments, you get to meet people in different departments and doing different things than you do. So I got to meet people in quality and purchasing and HR, and I got to spend time with customers. I got exposed to the other sides of the business other than engineering, which led me to get into other ends of the business. And it's funny because as a submarine officer, you go in, you're engineering qualified, you start in the engine room and you work your way forward until you get qualified as officer of the deck where you can be in charge of the whole submarine. But you start in engineering and you work to the front of the boat. I felt the same way about business. I started in engineering, but I wanted to work to the front of the boat. Eventually I did in five years, got a chance to get my own command, if you will, my own factory, which we had 140 people and it was my, and we were away from corporate. So we were like an island. So I was the guy in the corner of it. I had my own ship at that point. It was really cool to be able to do that only five years into my civilian career. It's something that you saw worked pretty well in the Navy where people who volunteered, you got to build your network. I love the phrase used in the book, skill stacking, where you got to stack skills of one on top of the other and develop a profile of things that you were competent at handling. How do you bring that culture in when you don't have the same sort of reinforcement system 
freedom and ability to do command and control in corporate America like you do in the Navy or even in Annapolis or even in where you were training. What do you do to help develop that if you're not the guy in charge in order to bring other people into that idea that the more you volunteer, the more you contribute, the more successful the business becomes and the more it helps your career? It's something I've always done with people. I've always encouraged my teams over the years. I've always said that you want to be the person that have the broadest knowledge base, the more certified as an auditor, or you're the guy that knows the standards better than anyone else. You want to be so valuable to the company that you're the last one on the list when they're looking at a personnel reduction. Make yourself valuable. And I think a lot of people look at their career as, oh, I I expect the company to promote me. I expect to move up. I expect this. I expect that. To me, you've got to earn that. You've got to manage your own career. There's only one person that's going to manage your career, and that's you. I've always felt this way. Maybe I'm a little competitive, but I've always said I've got to be one, two, and three steps ahead of my peers if I want to be successful. So what are the things that my peers have? Do they have an undergrad degree? I'm going to get a master's degree. Do they have this certification? I'm going to get the one above that. So you always want to make yourself uh, attractive to your employer, such to the point that you can have a long career and that you won't be the first on the list when they're looking for reduction. You want to make yourself so valuable that they can't get rid of you. That's really been my mindset my whole career. Have you been able to cultivate that among your managers in your own company now where you can say, this is how things are done here because we want people to have permission and encouragement to broaden their skills and be proactive and follow their curiosity. Yeah, absolutely. That's the beauty of a small company is that we get an opportunity to train people in areas that you wouldn't normally get in a big company. In a big company, you're in an apartment or you're in a plant or you're in a call center. You have a very specific task and a specific responsibility. My employees here get to do everything. So I've got marketing people that get to work on the manufacturing shop floor. I've got people in engineering that get a chance to go visit customers and and resolve technical problems with customers. Everyone gets an opportunity to see every nut and bolt of our company. They get a broader understanding. It's funny because most of my employees came from big companies. And one of the hardest things we've had to try to teach here is to think like a small business. We can't develop these big complex systems. We've got to get the job done today. Then over time, we can grow our systems. We can grow what we can do. But I think a small business is a great opportunity for you to learn a lot more about the industry than if you were in a big company. In a big company, you learn your your specific tasks really well. I think a small company, you get a chance to see the, the whole broader picture. My employees love that because they get a chance to see the whole business and not just one element. Is that something you use as a recruiting and retention mechanism to actually point out to people the opportunities they get? It's something that a lot of business leaders are thinking of these days and may not realize that's right there and it really doesn't cost hundreds of thousands of dollars to implement. You're right on it. I think small businesses have a challenge, right? So we don't have the resources of a large company, so we can't. And I work for big companies. I traveled around the world. They sent me to training. I was promoted. I had large bonus checks. I can't do those things in a small business a big business can do. However, I can give people really interesting jobs where they're not just a cog in the wheel. Their voice matters. Their work matters. In a small company, they could be 25% of effort that gets put into that month. So if they don't perform, the job doesn't get done. They feel valued. They feel like their voice matters and they feel like they're making a difference. A lot of employees are looking for that. They don't want to be just a cog in the wheel. They do want to know that their work matters and that they're contributing to the overall success of the business. That's what you get in a small business. You get to feel like your voice makes a difference. I love the quote from your book where you say, when you only give tough assignments to senior people and low risk projects to junior people, you're missing out on the powerful lessons of failure and helping people develop their skills by giving them challenging opportunities. Can you think of an example where you helped or included someone who probably wasn't ready for an assignment in your business and help them develop that experience and maybe some skills along the way because of a challenge you gave them? Let me tell you about a guy named Tom that worked 
for me. We had a situation where we had to move a plant and we had a plan and we had a plan to do it in about a year and a half. I met with the CEO of the company at the time and he said, we got to get it done in six. So we had to figure out how to move a plant in a lot quicker than we had planned to doing. I had a gentleman working for me, a good project manager, never taken on a project of this magnitude, but it was a great opportunity for me to see what he could do. It was a great opportunity for me to give him a challenging assignment and to see what he could do. What was remarkable about it is that he exceeded my expectations. We gave him the full responsibility. I was there. Obviously, one thing you do when you give somebody a tough assignment that works for you, you delegate the authority of the project, but you never delegate the responsibility. So I was still responsible for the overall project, but I delegated the authority of Tom. And Tom was amazing just the way he handled it. So he did things that I'd never thought of. I'll give you one example. We knew we had to move the equipment quickly. We found a, a neighboring plant that we could lease temporarily as we were still building our addition to our plant. So he came up with the idea with his team to tape out the floor of the new factory in exactly the same configuration of the old factory that we were shutting down and moving to this factory. Not only that, all of the electrical and air and hydraulics, everything was all set up and staged. All we had to do was then unplug the machinery from the plant that was in this case was in Kentucky and move it to North Carolina and plug it back in. And it was such a brilliant idea that I never would have thought of. And I think that's part of the challenge in leadership is that we think we have to have all the answers. But I think our people always surprise us if we give them responsibility, if we delegate that authority down to them and let them lead projects, they're going to surprise us. Tom knocked it out of the water. We hit all of our targets. He delivered on time. He delivered in such a creative way that it's just those opportunities that you've got to give people challenging assignments. Of course, I was always there to back them up. Anything went wrong, it was my responsibility. I wasn't going to throw it on him. I wasn't going to throw him under the bus if something failed. But again, the point is give people like that level of responsibility and let them go. You're always going to be surprised and happy with the result. Anything else that you've learned that works well delegating that was informed by your experience or things you had to relearn as you were doing it in small business? Yeah, small business is a whole nother animal. It's interesting, but first the big thing, right? So I was well known in the industry before I started this business. I had visited many of these customers and they knew me by name. So when I put on the new t-shirt with my logo on it, I thought people would just have me into their company and, and buy my product. What I realized is that it didn't matter who I was. The reputation of the company I was with before was standing behind me as a person. Now I was with a new company and there was definitely like, I don't know who this is. I've never heard of you guys. I don't trust you. So one of the things I had to do is reestablish trust in the industry with the new brand, my new company. That's a bit surprising. So anyone who's an entrepreneur or thinking about starting a big business and starting your own small business in the space, don't assume that you're going to land those customers right away just because you show up and you're wearing a new t-shirt with a different logo. That's a lesson that I learned very quickly that my personality wouldn't get me the order. They had to trust me. We had to start small. We had to earn their trust through small orders delivered on time with good quality and then they give us more orders and then it grew from there. Do you remember the point where you actually realized that with a particular customer that you were starting from the ground up and you needed to establish trust by delivering on exactly what you promised. I'll give you an example. We had a customer here in North Carolina, the city of, they call it Little Washington. It's Washington, North Carolina. They placed a very large order for us and they were trusting us with an order. It was our first big order. I remember our whole team looked at each other like, can we even do it? Right? Can we deliver on time? And we had to work through the weekend. We had to get the order done. The truck showed up, it got on and, uh, and we got it out the door. We got 
out to the customer. And I remember calling the customer a couple of weeks after the order. I said, how was everything? How'd you like your order? They're like, we absolutely loved it. You guys are great. We're going to be buying from you for, from this point forward. I just remember, wow, how cool is that? We had an order, a big order. We didn't expect. We weren't really ready for it, but we worked overtime to make it happen. And the customer was satisfied. And it was almost a feeling like, all right, like we can do this. We've got the team that can do this. We have the product. We have the packaging. All the things have to come together to get an order out the door. We had it in that order. Another time I would say this is that we had a large order from one customer. We have two production lines in our factory. We had a large order for one of our products. At the same time, we had a very large order for another product. I remember the first time we ran both production lines for the first time at the same time. I was actually on the floor helping on one of the lines because we needed an extra body out there. I remember thinking how cool it was that we had both of the lines and, and everyone in, the, in our company felt the same way too. Everybody was smiling. This is awesome. This is cool. But there was a lot of moments in a small business that you never got those kind of feeling in a big company. I drive a forklift now. I ran eight factories before I started this business. I never learned how to drive a forklift. Now I'll hop on a forklift, move some pallets around. It's no big deal because it's my company. now. I've learned skills I never had before, which is cool too. When you talked about the order with the city of Washington, placing that with you, that was transformative because before you had the belief that you could do that, then you had the proof and suddenly everything changed. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great feeling when you see it finally happen like that. One of the principles you talk about is eliminating failure as an option. And people can relate to that and they think of how important it is to say, all right, there are no other options. We've got to find a way to succeed. And they'll think of their favorite movies. They'll think about how that applies. But that really is very applicable to leading a small business. What's an example of a way that you've applied that in your business to let people know that we're going to go forward with this chosen direction. We're going to give the people the resources needed to succeed. We're just not going to think about not succeeding. We're going to build in the contingencies. We're going to check frequently. What's an example of a way that you instilled that belief and also executed on failure is not an option. One of the things is that we've always had the attitude that we always preach the idea that we're going to be successful regardless of what our circumstances are. So it's interesting too, is that when you have the mindset that you are going to be successful and everybody is on mission with that success, you figure out ways to make things happen. You find resources you didn't know you had available. For example, we had vendors that wanted to step up, help us with the financial ways, giving us some creative ways to pay for products so we could continue the growth. We had our landlord, for example, step up and say, hey, I love what you guys are doing. Can I loan you some money? Can I become part of your management team or your leadership team or your investment team? I think when you have that mindset that you're going to be successful, you find opportunities. You don't find problems. And the story I tell in the book, and I think that mindset comes from the days of submarining. We all were taught as a submariner that we had to get to the surface. There was no rescue plan. If anything happened on that submarine, we went straight to the bottom of the ocean and no one's going to find us. Everybody knew that. So we knew we had to get to the surface and that was the way everything was set up. The people, the procedures, everything was established such that we could get to the surface. There was no other plan, right? There was no plan B. We had to get the surface. I think that's the mindset we have in the small business, which is we've got to be successful. We've got to grow and we got to figure out how to make it happen. We don't know how it's going to happen. For example, giving a situation, we have a quotation system that we've had since we started the company. The company called and said, we're going to get out of that business. We're going to turn it off at the end of the year. This was the end of last year. But failure is not an option. So you got to figure out a way to keep moving forward, to keep doing quotes. We're going to find another piece of software that's going to work, it's going to integrate. And it turns out we found one, we put it in place. It's working great. Again, it's this idea that you're not going to give up. You're just going to keep moving forward. You're going to find a way to make it happen. Now that we're in the second year of pandemic in 2022, what's a specific way that you've pivoted in terms of growing your business and going out and finding new business that you had to be more creative than before? You had to find a new way. That's a great question. For us, at least, one of the ways we've grown our business is we spend a lot of time training customers. A lot of my competitors go to the big trade shows. They spend a lot of money 
having these large booths. What I found was there were better opportunities if I went to these, what they call a meter schools, their training events where the end users actually come and people in the industry train them on the products, the techniques, the procedures. So we found that we had more one-on-one time during these training sessions to be able to teach and train customers and build our brand as we are the experts and we can teach you, we can train you, we can show you. We've grown our business that way. COVID comes. All those training, all those meter schools were shut down. There's eight of them throughout the country. They all got shut down. So what do we do? We said, how can we still connect with our customers? How can we still train customers, build our credibility? So we set up virtual meter schools. We did training right from this office where I'm talking to you from. We set up uh, training and we did virtual meter schools and we set them up throughout 2020, which is our first year in 2021. It was free. You could sign up and you come on board and we give you free training that would basically fill in what didn't happen during the COVID years of where we couldn't get together and do in-person training. And people loved it. It was great. And it really helped our reputation, helped build our credibility and help grow our business. I imagine that since you'd never done something like it before, people got to develop new skills as they started teaching that they didn't have before. Absolutely. Yeah. We've all learned some new skills through this whole process. Absolutely. Yeah. It's been great. It's funny because now I even do customer visits. A lot of customers are not having visitors. If you think about it, my customers are electric utilities. They can't have people sick because these people need to keep the grid going. So we do a lot of virtual training and we do a lot of virtual customer visits. I've gotten used to being like Vanna White holding up product and talking about it and talking through it. And it's just fun and everybody's used to it now. But yeah, the first time was awkward and weird, but now it's normal. It's great that you go into it with the attitude of we're going to figure this out and do the best we can. And Yeah, exactly. John, are you ready for the My Quest for the Best lightning round? Sure, let's do it. All right. So at the beginning of the interview, I asked you about someone who influenced and inspired you. And you talked about your grandfathers. One was in the army, one was in the Navy. When you were a teenager, John, what's a song that you loved? Jump from Van Halen. Anything from Van Halen. Classic. What would you say is now the best way that you get the word out about your mission each week to your customers as well as new prospects? We do it through social media and we do it through customer visits and we do it through our deliveries and how we deliver on time and meet our commitments. Is there a particular tool or method that you follow in order to stay productive and on track for yourself? I keep on a routine. I get up at 4 a.m. I'm an early riser. I write in the mornings, I work out, and then I'm in, in the office and I keep to a very disciplined routine. What would you say is the best advice you ever received? People will surprise you. Let them surprise you. Where did you learn that? From one of my first bosses, Norb Hagenoff. What's a book that you've given as a gift the most that's not one of your own? First Break All the Rules. I give that to everyone. It's a great book. What's your definition of personal success? That's a great question. I would say this is when you have achieved your goals, when you've done something that you've dreamed about for years and you get a chance to sit back and think about it and just enjoy that moment, that's what success is to me, is achieving a goal and taking those 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes to just soak it in. What would you say is the most important habit, skill, or belief that you've stopped in the last year that's brought you the most pleasure or personal satisfaction? Don't listen to critics. How have you implemented that? I read reviews on my books. I don't care. I just keep moving forward. Now, I think you can get derailed. So don't let the critics derail you. You are the man in the arena. Don't let the critics derail you. I love that quote as well. On your blog, you wrote about a story that we're all familiar with by now, where Vishal Garg, who is the CEO of the mortgage company Better.com, hosted a meeting with 900 of their employees on a Zoom call and fired them. He said, if you're on this call, I've got some bad news for you. You no longer have a job with us. He did this just a couple weeks before Christmas. That's a whopper of a bad leadership move. If you'd been working with Vishal and had a few months with him, working as a leadership coach, helping him think things through more effectively, what would your conversations have been like in the months leading up to December? I think the the main thing there would have been, you don't fire 900 people in one day. You've known that you have a cost problem. You have a resource problem. You're overstaffed. You would know that. I think you, you would need to say, 
set some indicators up and some notifications up earlier. This was a complete surprise. Nobody knew this was coming. And it was just after the company got funded significantly. They were cash rich. They just got significant funding. So my point is that there should have been some warning signs. There should have been some early communication to employees that something big was going to have to happen. It was going to have to happen soon. This came out of the blue and it was done in a Zoom call, which is not a good way to do it with 900 people on a call. Look, span of control. We should have 12 to 15 people reporting to us. So there must be some leadership structure in that company. Those managers of those people should have talked to them, not the CEO. So many things are wrong with that. And I'm not saying that 900 people didn't have to go or some people say that those 900 people were cheating the company and not working. Okay, all that may be true, but there's better ways to handle it with respect. And my big thing is about treating people with respect. Because in the long run, when you treat people with respect, what do you create besides just a a well-functioning, profitable company? Yeah, when people enjoy coming to work and they feel challenged and they feel like they're part of the team and they feel like their hopes and dreams align with the hopes and dreams of the company, then I think the magic happens. When people are engaged, excited, and involved and they want to see the success, they're far more likely to do go above and beyond than employees that are just there for a paycheck. We as leaders like to think of people as expenses because that's the way it is on the P&L statement. Personnel expense detracts from profit. So short-term managers think, oh, I'll just reduce personnel expense and I'll get more profit. Well, the great leaders think of employees as an asset in that they will bring future value to the company. So how do you maintain your assets? How do you get the most out of your assets? That's a quote unquote assets. It's to take care of your people and let them bring future value to your company. Don't worry about them as far as an expense because they're going to bring so much more value to your company than you'll ever imagine. John Rennie, I just want to thank you so much for joining me on my quest for the best. You've shared so many great ideas, starting with your grandfather's inspiring you to serve your country and to make a contribution from that aspect. You talked to us about the importance of whether in the military or in business or in life, you want to find ways to work yourself out of the nub experience where you're a non-useful body just consuming and find ways to contribute positive. You want to look at ways to skill stack so that everyone is thinking about how to become the most valuable person that they can be for a company instead of just standing back and not volunteering. Because as you described for your own experience, as well as those you've given the experience, when you volunteer, you not only gain experiences, you build skills and build relationships that will serve you in the long term. So for these reasons and so many more, John, I want to thank you for joining me on my quest for the best. Hey, John, before we say goodbye for now, where is it we can find out more about you and your work online? Everything is at johnsrenny.com. We're going to link to johnsrenny.com as well as your social media, as well as ways to buy the book so that people can keep up with what's going on in your life and how you're evolving your own leadership style and the lessons you're learning. John Rennie, author of All in the Same Boat, lead your organization like a nuclear submariner. I want to thank you once again for joining me on My Quest for the Best. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on My Quest for the Best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback, and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review My Quest for the Best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on My Quest for the Best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.